Welcome everyone today to our uh, services this morning uh, as we are going to continue looking in our Bible class at the book of Genesis today, uh, coming now to quickly to a close of uh, an effort to, to see uh, what I hope you've been able to get a little broader picture of these early chapters that sometimes I think get overlooked in the way that we approach them. Gerald and I were just talking about it to try to really see God laying the foundation for the story that is going to unfold. Remembering that he's talking to Israel, uh, as he's, and they know who the Lord is. They have seen his, his work. They have seen his miracles. They've been delivered by him. It's not written to convince them of his reality, but to help them understand truly who the Lord God is. There's just one God. There is no other uh, and uh, his uh, love for and desire to, uh, to uh, deliver humanity from the sin that has come into the world. All of that is, uh, he's laying that foundation. And we're going to try to get up to Genesis, uh, 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 end of 11, next week, uh, that will bring us to Abraham, which is then the beginning of the story of Israel and ultimately uh, the story of Christ coming into the world in the fulfillment of the promise God made, even in Genesis 3. Well, we're glad that you're here this morning. I'm looking around for Al. Uh, he must be still talking to people. Al Jackson, his wife, Anisha, here visiting with us this morning. Uh, he's going to be speaking uh, on uh, what we find in our study of the book of Genesis, the foundation of human society that God has given, marriage, uh, the first and great divine institution, uh, and, and the strength of our families, both then and now, is the foundation of, uh, upon which a, a righteous and godly society can be built. So it segues very well into what we are talking about today. Let me just quickly review a couple of things that we've already noted from the story of the flood. And I want to thank Kent. Kent covered uh, last week the flood from a standpoint of uh, apologetics. Uh, very, again, all that we're doing here is just glimpses, uh, but he did a great job for having only 35 minutes to talk about it, the evidence in relationship to what that means. Uh, and this morning, I'm going to continue sort of summing up the story of Noah. But I do want to remind you that the story of Noah, while indeed it is a great example of judgment upon a world that walks away from God into darkness uh, that uh, nevertheless, God is fair and God is desiring still to save humanity. And that Genesis in the story of the flood, is also, it's a salvation story as the world is saved through Noah and his family. And still there's a flickering light in the world in spite of the darkness that is sweeping over it. God sees Noah and God uses Noah, a righteous man, to deliver the world uh, and ultimately save all of humanity because it is going to be through Noah, of course, and his seed, his descendants, that Abraham will come and ultimately our Lord and Savior comes into the world. So God hasn't given up uh, on his covenant of Genesis 3 and his desire to save mankind. So by faith, Noah being warned by God, the Hebrew writer said, 
about things not seen, and reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household by which he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness, which is in accord to faith. So it's about, as Second Peter 2 says, not just only condemning the world or judging the world, but also rescuing the godly. So uh, you see God on a rescue mission, and we need to read it from that standpoint. First Peter chapter 3 also tells us God is patient. He was not only fair, he was patient. How long did he wait before he brings the flood, after he's made the determination that that is really the only thing left to do uh, in answer to the wickedness that's in the world. 120 years. He waits 120 years. And Noah is not only by example, but uh, he's called a preacher of righteousness. Noah is warning the world. God has two plans to save the world. And, and you need to see that. The first plan, A, is repent. That's always what he desires. He doesn't take any pleasure in the death of the wicked. None. If we ever think that God in some way gets any satisfaction in that way, that's not so. And he's trying to call the world back to himself while plan B is in operation. And that is, if the world continues in its ungodliness, uh, then he's going to deliver Noah as his plan is. And that's what happens. There is no repentance. Uh, and men don't turn back to God. And so God starts again with Noah and his family. So what we're going to be looking at this morning mostly is, is the post-flood. What happens after the flood as Noah and his family now have come through uh, the flood in chapter 8? Of course, you have the new beginning. God remembers Noah. The waters subside. Ken uh, talked about that some. Noah and his family go out into the ark. And what are they told to do? Be fruitful and multiply. So they re Commission. The mission is given again, be fruitful and multiply, but they're going out into a different world than the time in which that original uh, commission was given because the curse of sin is still in the world. The world hasn't been uh, redeemed from that yet. So he's not going out into a garden uh, as Adam and Eve were placed. Uh, the world is still under the curse of sin. And, and so while it's a new beginning and they've been delivered, uh, things still have changed. It isn't a world that doesn't know sin. And in fact, uh, at the end of chapter 8, it says, Noah built an altar to the Lord and took every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. The Lord smelled the soothing aroma. And the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest and cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. So here is a covenant that's going to be repeated in chapter 9. And let me just go ahead and read uh, that portion beginning in verse 8. God spoke to Noah and his sons with him saying, Now behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast on the earth, uh, with you of all that comes out of the ark, even every beast of the earth, I establish my covenant with you. And all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood, neither shall there be a, again be a flood to destroy the earth. God said, this is the sign of the covenant which I am making between me and you 
and every living creature that is with you for all successive generations. I set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be as for a, as for a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. It shall come about when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow will be seen in the cloud, and I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the cloud, then I will look upon it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that's on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. So the rainbow is placed in the heavens by God as a sign of this covenant that he makes with Noah and with all living things. So why does God make this covenant? Why does he do it? Why does he say, I want to do this? All right, well, well that's the reason of the, the, the rainbow, but it, it comes in, first of all, in response to what? Now, to destroy the earth in a flood, uh, why does he make the covenant? What's his reason for doing it? Going to save it through Jesus, but if you're reading this as Israel, first of all, what happens? Noah comes out of the ark, and what's he do? Worships God. He devotes himself and his family to, to the Lord, and he offers the sacrifice. Comes up as a soothing aroma. What that's saying is, God sees Noah. Noah is worshiping him. He's seeing that response, but then that, that's part of it. What you know, God is responding now, and I think giving us a glimpse. He's his. He's not lost hope for humanity. He's not lost sight of his desire. And ultimately, when we say through Christ, his purpose to redeem the world. He hasn't forgotten that. And so here's a response. And here's a man who gives him grounds for that. But then there's something else he says. He's, he said, I'm going to put this in the heavens. I'm never going to destroy the earth again because man's learned his lesson now. I sent a flood, I destroyed everything, and, and now, man, he's cured of that kind of wickedness, and I won't ever have to do that again. Is that what he says? Uh-uh. What does he say? What? I won't destroy it with water, but he gives a reason here. Because of what? He says, man's, I'm not going to hold the earth accountable in regard to our humanity. It's because man's heart is evil from his youth. That's what he says, isn't it? He said, look, here's part of what he's saying. If I descend a flood every time that the world gets full of evil, I'll be sending a flood every generation. If, I, if that's the plan, as we're trying to get insight, and I'm telling you there's insight here. God said, I'm not going to do this again. Even though this is a great lesson, there's some great examples, and God isn't saying I'm never going to hold men accountable or issue judgments again. But in regard to this, he says, I'm not going to destroy the earth. That's not my plan. So as I'm looking at this, one of the things God is saying is, and I think this is a key principle, I'm not depending on human beings. Whom he loves. He loves humanity. But he's saying in this covenant, I'm not depending on human beings to save and build a world established on righteousness. Human beings are not going to do that. 
I'm relying on my own righteousness. I'm going to have to, I'm relying on myself. It's folly to build a world on, or to try to do it on the foundation of human righteousness. If there's one great illusion or error of secular humanism, it is the belief that we're going to build a better world without God, that we can do it. All of the great sentiments. I'm not saying that men can't dream it and that some men can't understand. Surely we could do better because there's glimpses of our goodness within us and of God's stamp on humanity. So even unbelievers can dream of a better world. But have we ever built it? You think back through history, has any civilization, have we ever done that? Are we, do we think some scientific breakthrough that we haven't made yet is really good? That's going to change the world? Some economic policy that we're going to come up with, dream up with, that's going to, that's going to build this great world that people have if we can change our economic policy. And I'm not saying that it shouldn't be changed or, or things couldn't be better. I'm just saying, you, you think that's going to save the world? You think we're going to build a better world because of some medical breakthrough and that's going to build the best? We have had breakthroughs. We've educated. We've become brighter in terms of understanding. We've, we, and the world has remained full of wickedness. And I'm telling you, it's a mistake for you and I to believe that we can build a world that is built upon our own goodness. You look around, nothing new. It hasn't changed. The world has not changed. And so when you look at the evil in the world today, understand it's been here since the garden. And men have been swept up in it, both before the flood and after the flood. And all the cultures that are built by men are destined to be consumed with wickedness. And this is not an indictment of, uh, this is not saying theologically that we don't have a decision to make or choices or that because we're born depraved that we can't help ourselves. But it is saying a truth that is evident and that is man's heart's wicked. And sin is in the world and we choose it. And the deliverance that we have from it will only come from God and looking to Him and turning toward Him. And so God is saying, I'm not waiting for humanity to become righteous. <laughs> I, I'm not going to withhold my wrath uh, waiting for humanity to give up its bloodshed and violence. That's not going to happen. Uh, that isn't going to, to one day be the result. And it happens generation after generation after generation. So he lays a foundation regarding this covenant binds who? God. This is a covenant that he initiates upon himself as to the 
manner in which he is going to deal with humanity. As I say, I think there's some big principles here in Genesis and God is incumbent upon himself in this covenant and he's saying, I'm not going to rely on humanity to save the world here or for the world's future. Here's a principle that's going to guide his plan for the earth. First of all, he's not going to send a flood to destroy the wicked of the earth again the whole earth and all things in it. That's not, and we can say, well, he's going to send fire at the end. But again, uh, well, it isn't about just the method of destruction. That, that fire that comes at the end is all about the creation of a new heaven and a new earth and doing away with the old one. So, but, but as he's looking, so when that redemption is coming, yes, this earth and all that is wicked in it will one day be gone. He's, going, he's promised to rid the world of all of that is, is his completion. But it won't be when that end is done, we'll have a new heaven and new earth. That is, uh, sin will have been dealt with. We won't be leaving an ark uh, that saved us from the fire going right back into the same world that we came out of like Noah did. We're going to be walking into heaven in the presence of God and sin and death will be cast into the fire and, and, and will be over. So that, that's going to complete what God has said. But until that time, God says, I'm not going to destroy the earth in this way again. And the reality is, the cities and kingdoms we build, brethren, that men build, are destined to be consumed by evil. Why? Why is that true? What? Because I want you to get that. The hearts of men are evil. And men without God in control, if we take God off the throne, what is going to result is what we're reading here over and over again. We've seen it from the beginning, whether it's brother killing brother, whether it is corruption until the hearts of man is consumed with evil. What you're seeing, again, our humanity is walking away from God. That's what's happening. We can't survive apart from Him. It isn't just that God is angry saying, well, you know, I can't believe you insulted me like that. I'm going to get you for that. That isn't what's happening. I'm telling you that we can only live in the light of God's presence. And if we turn that light off, if we walk away from Him, what we are left with is death, darkness, and evil. And so worlds where there is no... Go to places where God can't be found and you will find men swept up in evil. Wherever it is, in whatever country, whatever city where God can't be found, you will find wickedness uh, triumphing. That's always true. And the consequences that come from that. So Romans 1 through 3, tell us what happened when man walks away from God. What happens when, uh, when men leave his presence? That leads to all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so what's the answer as it unfolds in Scripture to are to God looking at humans whom he loves. Never forget that, whom he loves and doesn't want to die. What's the answer? Well, I'll tell you, 
It came in the form of a flood in, the, in terms of delivering Noah and his family from a world of wickedness, but that was a limited deliverance, wasn't it? God doesn't save the world through floods. He saved the world through a gift. He saved the world from wickedness through a sacrifice. And I want you to see, because I'm talking to you, brethren, about our place in the world today and how we're to view it and what we're to be about. There may be times when we find ourselves saying, Lord, bring a flood. <laughs> Sweep the evil off. I'm sick of this. I'm like Noah. My, my soul is tormented. I just can't believe. Folks, what you're seeing is the devil at work. You're seeing the devil at work as he has been from the beginning, having men in prisons of darkness, and they need to be set free from that. Yes, the Lord, if, if, if he's left with no other choice, yes, the wickedness will be swept away and the human beings with it. But God is patient, not wishing any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And men don't have to die. They don't have to be left in darkness. And we've got the key to unlock that prison and let them out and bring them back into the presence of God. That's what we're doing here this morning. That's who we are. And, in and when our light goes out, there's nothing left. We've got to see who we are and what our place is in the world. And it's not, we're not in it because we're free from wickedness ourselves, but it's because we've come to God in faith in who He is and what He said here. It's this principle that God in relying on us and our righteousness. He didn't choose us because He said, oh, there's a group of people and see them. There's no sin in this group. There's no wickedness here. And they're going to save the world. That isn't what he said. Noah was chosen, and we'll see even later in this story, it wasn't because he was a sinless man or because there was no wickedness to be found in him. It was because he was righteous by faith. It was because he turned himself and devoted himself to God and devoted himself and his family to the Lord. And that's what made the difference for Noah. It's what makes the difference for you. It's what makes the difference for me. And it's what makes the difference for the world if we can help them see it. And I want you to think about when Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 3 and 4, though we walk in the flesh, we do not wage battle according to the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but are divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. So that's critical, brethren, if we're going to know who we are in the world today. It's critical we understand God is not sending us into the world as a destructive flood. That's not who we are. That's not our spirit. That's not the weapons that we use. What are our weapons? Light and salt. I love Paul's description in 2 Corinthians 6. Listen to him talk about the weapons that he used to bring these fortresses down. Working together with him. You see, 
He's working with God. We urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain, for he says, at the acceptable time I listened to you. On the day of salvation, I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation, giving no cause for offense in anything. Boy, isn't that a pretty good principle? No cause for offense in anything, so that the ministry will not be discredited. But in everything, committing ourselves as servants of God, in much endurance, in afflictions, in hardships, in distresses, in beatings, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in hunger, in purity, in knowledge, in patience, in kindness, in the Holy Spirit, in genuine love, in the word of truth, in the power of God, by weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left, by glory and dishonor, by evil report and good report, regarded as deceivers yet true, as unknown yet well known, as dying yet behold we live, as punished yet not being put to death, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing all things. That's who we are. How many of those weapons are you willing to use to save the world? How many of those weapons do you have in your arsenal? Are you ready for beatings and imprisonment if necessary? Sleepless nights? Cold, hunger, we're so concerned about our comforts and convenience. We don't know who we are, brethren. We're so willing when the world, it's not surprising that the world takes up weapons to defend whatever it is that they wish to promote. That's not who we are. That's not who we are. We take up the cross daily. We can't forget who we are. We're going out telling the world to turn to the Lord God who loves us and wants us to dwell in peace and righteousness. And so with purity, with the determination that no one will have reason to find offense in us, uh, to treat people with love and kindness, genuine love, that's who we are. Now wickedness is going to find its way into us. There's just no way about it. But we're about the business of not turning our lives back over to the devil. We're not quitting. We're not giving up. Our hearts belong to God and sin will have no permanent place within us. Because we understand what's at stake. And part of what we do need to understand in regard to that, and I want to make the point, God is building a kingdom out of sinful men. Why is he doing that? That's That's all there is. If God isn't going to build a kingdom out of sinful men, then he's not going to build one at all. That's what we need to see here. He's not going to build one if he doesn't. As Pascal said, there are two kinds of men in the world. There are Sinful men who believe they are sinful, and there are sinful men who believe they're righteous. But there's sinful men 
That's all that there is in the world. That's what Genesis is telling us. And God understood if I'm going to build my kingdom with these people, then I'm going to have to build it with sinful men because that's all there is. And so he builds his kingdom not established on our righteousness, but on what? His righteousness. And so when we read about the righteousness which comes by faith in the book of Romans, it's because it's the only way it can come to us. When Paul says God made salvation based on faith so that righteousness may be obtained by faith in him, it's because there's no other way to get it. Because our hearts are evil from our youth. And we know that it's true. So it isn't going to come that way. I know sometimes it gets frustrating. I'm not telling you, brethren, and I know there are great people here in this audience who have trusted in God and have been about the business of trying to get sin out of their lives, and they are bright lights in my life. I see in them the image of Christ becoming clearer and clearer because they're walking with Him. There's just the evidence of it is there. But I'm telling you this, if you were to ask them, is sin out of your life? If you now, are you? No, I'm still walking with the Lord looking for that promise to be fulfilled. So don't be frustrated that there's that you're finding that you're not as far along as you'd like to be, but you keep trusting in God in terms of His purpose. Keep doing that. But all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that's not just a one-time thing. And that if we say we have no sin, we lie, and the truth isn't in us, that isn't just talking about some remote sin that, you know, I'd forgotten about that. You're right, I do have a sin in my life. We know it's bigger than that. Because we live in a world where evil is prevalent. But we hate it. We hate it in the world, but we hate it more in our own lives. Or we should, because we know what it's about. And I just think as we look at all of that, one of the great things we need to see this morning that transforms us, that, that is this, even if our sins appear to be trivial, maybe that's how we might look at, you, you think you got sin, oh, that's, that's, that's not, and we may convince ourselves, well, you know, I, I, I'm like, sort of like a fellow that said, well, I don't uh, commit adultery, I, I don't steal, I don't do, hey, I've never done any of those things, I've kept all the commandments from my youth up. We may look at ourselves and say, yeah, oh, well, I'm sure you can find something in there that, uh, that is a violation, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a really pretty great guy. That may be our uh, opinion, but I'll tell you this, we don't have to be guilty of some terrible sin. I hope you're not, I hope you don't have to live with that. I hope you, that it's not something deep within you because when the, the things that are of terrible regret to righteous people, I wouldn't wish on anybody uh, if your conscience isn't still burning over things that you look back and say, I hate that I ever thought it or ever did it uh, because I know what it means. I, I, I would not wish that upon anybody. But I want to tell you, even if that's not there, one of the great sins of God's people today is we're content to live lives that are trivial. We are not consumed 
by the love of God in Christ Jesus. We don't hate evil and what it's doing to the world. We don't take up our armor daily. These weapons Paul is talking about, you want to know what made Paul the kind of man he is? He understood what was at stake. He recognized what was going on and the battle that he was engaged in and what he was willing to do in order to further the cause of Christ. And would to God that we could get a glimpse of that. I'm not saying that I have lived a life like Paul. I'm just telling you, brethren, we need to see the world at war with Satan and his minions and the consumption of the world by evil and understand that's what we are here to deliver the world from as the people of God. And in that regard, I thought McGuigan in his book makes a pretty good little statement. He says, and as a result, he No great causes are championed. No oppressed are defended. No captives are set at liberty. No costly things are done for Christ's sake. No great wrongs against us are forgiven. No brave words are voiced in public. And if our power were 10,000 times greater than now, the wronged would know no change and the tyrants would know no fear of us. In that lies a measure of our evil. And so it's, to me, as I read these early chapters and see the war that still goes on, but there's one great difference between our day and that day, and that is our champion has come, right? It's that the Lord Himself and the person of Jesus who we love and have come, who brought us out of darkness He's come into the world and we're going to remember him around the table of communion this morning. We're going to lift up the bread and the cup and we're going to celebrate his victory over evil, sin and death. And our faith in him is what brings us here and guides our lives. It's because we believe that he has defeated sin and death. And it's not merely the fact that we're hoping to live forever. We're hoping to live with Him forever. We're hoping to live in His light forever and His deliverance forever. That's what's unfolding. And so God makes a covenant. And He makes many covenants in Scripture. There's seven times He says in this chapter He's making a covenant. And whenever you see God making a covenant, you know, it's, there are just two things that should stand out. One is, isn't it amazing that God bothers to make covenants with us? That God, as David said, that he even thinks about us, that he would do that. But God does it. He makes covenants with humanity. Sometimes those covenants are unilateral. That is, he's binding upon himself a promise, and he says, this is what I'm going to do. Sometimes he calls us into a covenant in which we bear some responsibility to receive it. But when those covenants are made, we are given the choice of doing what? Saying yes or no. But the terms are non-negotiable. 
God doesn't come and say, let's get on the table and see what you're willing to give. And here's what I, it didn't work that way. God says, here's the covenant that I'm bringing to you. I want to bless you and I want to deliver you. I want to bring good to you and I want you to do good. And we'll make a covenant of fellowship together. You'll commit to me in righteousness and I will commit to you in love and fidelity and let's come together. But the terms are laid out so that we know what it is and, and we either receive it and say yes or we do not. And as we read this book of Genesis together, we'll have just a few more thoughts next week and we will travel fast. And let me just say to you, brethren, I say yes to Him. And no to darkness. I hope you do too.